I'm Michael Williams, Artistic Director of Sydney Writers' Festival. We hope you enjoy this conversation recorded live at the 2021 festival. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Laura Tingle. I'm your um, friendly moderator for this afternoon's conversation where we, we might have a few fights. But before we start, um, I'd like to begin by acknowledging the Gadigal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples here today. So, larrikins. Um, we, we, we all had to think about this a bit uh, because what a larrikin is really differs when you actually start to look at it. Is it larrikin humour? Is it, is it an approach to authority? I mean, it's all of those things. Uh, but it's, it's interesting to sort of look back at, it, at its traditions and its roots. And so today we're going to sort of do a bit of that and then sort of consider how we deal with things in Australia now and the extent to which we are prepared to just break from what we're being told to do. And what an excellent panel of people to discuss this with. So I'm going to start by just making the observation that uh, I found um, Scott Morrison's press release when Bob Hawke died the other day by happenstance. You know, that's the sort of thing I do in my spare time. And he referred to Bob Hawke as a larrikin, which sort of shows you how it's, you know, it, it's sort of a, a term of affection, um, it's a compliment in some quarters, but in its past it's been all sorts of different things. Uh, and so let's start from my right and get David Ma to say, have a few thoughts about what, what's, what, what is the Australian larrikin myth? Well, it's one of those words that has shifted and changed all the time and continues to shift and change. It's just a handy sort of platform on which to park a few ideas. I mean, it seems to have started with some notion of skiving off, um, larking, um, going off on a lark, somehow became a larrikin. But I don't really think the origins of it matter that much, um, not nearly as much as our attachment to it as an idea, the notion that we have something in our soul which is larrikin, um, now, larrikin is not seriously criminal. Don't be a larrikin, my mother would say, in her <laughs> impeccable Upper North Shore British imitation accent. And what she meant was that we had to be polite and not to be too noisy. Uh, we had to respect our elders, not to be rude to our parents, things like that. We had to be well-behaved. But it wasn't a huge... I mean, there were much worse things to be accused of than being a larrikin, let me tell you. Um, and always this notion, which I know we're going to come back and back and back to, um, is that it is an Australian virtue. But we'll come back to that. Joe. Um, yeah, I, th I, th I tussle with it a little bit, you know, because I guess um, when, I, when I first look at the larrikin line and what it means to be, or, or the ideology of what it means to be a larrikin, um, I think of humour. But then other people's, you know, and, and that was said to me as well um, when I was growing up, don't be a larrikin or don't be a goose, more importantly. Um, although nothing against geese. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I think for me as well is that obviously being a First Nation man is that it is used too often to hide behind some sometimes saying poor things and and well people who are larrikins get away with it a hell of a lot more you know when they're, they're saying saying bad things around you know different you know but in in poor taste and and people say well oh well, he's just the, he's, he's just a joker he's just he's a larrikin he's like that yeah but it doesn't excuse it um so so i find a lot people hide behind the idea or the you know the identity of being a larrikin rebecca Hunt. Uh, I think when I think of the term larrikin, I think that it's like all other Australian archetypes, which is that it isn't completely disaggregated from reality, but it mainly is. And so this kind of, it's a myth, like that we're an egalitarian society or that we, um, you know, that uh, we're a society of a fair go. So that it's, it's a bit true, but it's not always true. I mean, it's clear when you're a larrikin, I think of a working class white guy. You know, I'm rude, I go to the footy, 
I do iconoclastic things. No one ever would call me a larrikin. Um, my family on my mother's side were Italian, working class people who liked to joke. They would never be described as larrikins. And I think it's, it's increasingly a problematic one in terms of the intense culture wars we have now where, I mean, there's, a, there's an aggressive nature to Australian humour sometimes. So there's nothing more aggressive than when somebody says something appalling in a public place and are called on it and they say, oh, I'm just, it's just a joke. It's never just a joke. <laughs> so that's why I have a problem with the kind of larrikin concept in many ways. And, and he's just a larrikin. He's, yeah, look, he's he just, just a larrikin. Be a cunt. You know, like, he's but, saying, that's what we should actually like. Yeah. Sometimes he's not a larrikin. He's just a cunt. Um, well, it's funny. Yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> Sorry, we went there already. People would call me a larrikin normally if I didn't have boobs. But can larrikins have boobs? No, they I don't cannot. think. I don't think they can. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't want to be. I don't want in any sense to be um, uh, sexist here, but I think larrikins are masculine. Absolutely, that's the point I was making. Some <laughs> of the, my best, yeah, some of my lesbian best friends are definitely larrikins, definitely. but that's part of a general picture yeah. of um, unfeminine attributes. <laughs> um, but, and their love for it, but um, it's a masculine thing, isn't it? Look, it's the bloke who says terrible racist, makes terrible racist remarks. Oh, don't worry, he's just a larrikin. Well, it's, it's funny you should mention that because um, in my incredibly in-depth research for this uh, session, I found out that on Sky last year, or it might have been the year before, they had a big... Time does not matter with Sky. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Uh, but apparently they had a documentary or a series called The Death of the Aussie Larrikin and um, Andrew Bolt and Rowan Dean were running it. <laughs> and the death I, of the racist is still very alive. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and, it's um, a lingering death. It's slow. Since, yeah. and, and since Rebecca's mentioned cunts, I can now do oh. it. Um, and I've the, opened the door. It's going downhill really fast. We didn't start that. Sorry, sorry to all the sorry to all the people in libraries on this stage. Sorry to all the people in libraries around Australia who, who are you know being shocked because they're not in the, here in the room and picking up the sort of and if it, the children are in there as well. Yeah, and the larrikin vibe. But uh, but I rather like the Batuta advocates. Speaking of larrikins, um, who had a, uh, one of their mock stories that said. The Aussie larrikin is dead, says the last two cunts on earth that you'd invite to the pub. Um, <laughs> and, and, I mean, this... I want to meet those... The, if they're guys, the Batuta, I want to meet those guys. They're if they're girls, I want to meet those girls yeah. as well. They're funny as heck. Yeah, they are very funny. Um, and, you know, the conversation is already going, you know, right off the rails, <laughs> not only in terms of our smartiness, but in terms of, you know, my ex excellent plan for where it was going to go. But... One of the things that sort of... She's got this mapped out. She's got it mapped out every step of the way. Come on, keep on trying there, Laura. And you're just going to keep... You're just, no. going, to, you're just going to defy me like the larrikin you are. But, um, but, it, but the interesting thing to me when I was thinking about this is that it, the, the sort of the right, if you like, um, and it goes to the point that Joe makes, the, the right, if we, have, if we have to put those labels on, People like Mark Latham is a really good example of it. Uh, they sort of say, I should be able to say these things. It sort of got caught up with the whole debate about political correctness. You know, they say, we should be able to say what we think, you know, and we've all become wowsers, which, of course, was sort of the opposite of larrikin. Let's be honest. I think middle-aged white men have an entitlement that they think they can say anything. Oh, I think that's a topics. bit of a broad generalisation. <laughs> <laughs> most definitely, most definitely. But when we're, when we're using the names that we're using, then you know it's a it's, it's a it's it's a facade to hide behind. You know, if I'm if I'm being a racist or I'm saying something you know horrifically demeaning to people, then you know I'm just a larrikin or I was just joking around. Just gives us a you know a, a, a pass card to use to say inappropriate things. Just to build on that, it's not so much that those people can't say what they want, but they can't say what they want without consequence. What they want is to be able to say what they want without the kinds of people who they've continually demeaned and defamed to speak up. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's actually not... This is, the, this is the problem of the perversion of how we talk about freedom of speech in this country, is that it's not 
that you can't say those things, but you can't say those things without consequence. And what annoys them is that the voices that are drowning them out are the voices of people they don't want anything to do with, and suddenly there's not just one or two, there's lots of them. So that's the problem. So, but I suppose the thing that I find really... I mean, the ultimate faux larrikinism in Australia is Matt Canavan... <laughs> The man who cannot blame his Italian... You can't blame any mistake he ever makes not on his Italian mother. His poor Italian mother, right? Remember when he had this problem with his... Um, citizenship. With his citizenship, he said, oh, it's my mum's fault. <laughs> yeah. And no... Well, actually, a lot of Italian men blame stuff on their mothers. But anyway, I'll put that aside. Um, this is a man who has never, you know, done a manual job in his life, who has the temerity to appear on Twitter with a coal-stained face, walking around being a larrikin. And this is a man who's on $150,000 a year in Parliament. And so the way people dress up, particularly our political leaders as larrikins, is just an insult to the actual people who might aspire to the term larrikin in the best possible way. A larrikin is somebody with a dry sense of humour, who is a bit of an iconoclast, and it's not a bad thing because iconoclastic approaches to power is not a bad idea. But, I mean, that's the most benevolent def definition of larrikin. But you have these absolute tosses, turning, walking around, dressing up like larrikins and using it as a kind of an excuse, A, for, a to appeal to the, pop, you know, to the general population, um, but also to kind of pretend to be something and not really shits me. So <laughs> let's, let's go back to the origins of this. Um, and there are sort of images of, that you sort of associate with uh, larrikins along the way. But one of the really interesting things to me uh, when I was reading about all of this was, uh, obviously, it's always been associated with, you know, convicts and defying the, the masters and all that sort of stuff. But it's also really been linked with Indigenous humour and some of the sort of characters in Sydney right back in the day, like, you know, Ben Along being one example who uh, used to take the piss out of, um, out of the powers that be. I forget which governor it was. I don't know, it was Arthur? Was, would it have been Arthur? Arthur was Van Diemen's Land. You're probably thinking uh, of Arthur uh, Phillip. Philip, Arthur. sorry. Yes. I'm having a senior moment, OK? Sorry. I'll be accused of mansplaining, but I'll have to... I'll wear it. <laughs> well, I've been reading a lot of Richard Flanagan, OK? That's, that's, um, that's my excuse, um, uh, in preparation for tomorrow. But, uh, I mean... Indi indigenous humour, is there such a thing, do you think, Joe? Is it, I mean, do you think th there's a sort of a laconic indigenous humour that's got a larrikin, a particular larrikin streak? Is, should, we actually be, should we actually be saying that this thing that... We're funny like as else, shit, man. Yeah. <laughs> we are, like, if anyone's been to, like, a party with us mob, like, all we do is laugh. All we do is laugh, like... Some of my cousins are the funniest people that I've ever met. You know, like it's, it's, a, it's a distinct humour. And it's like you said, you know, Ben Long was taking the piss out of people. It's because I think we've got a history of gigging each other. You know, and we do, and we do it like I was, I was out on country last week. Um, and you've got to have thick skin out there. <laughs> you've got to have thick skin because we, like we give it to each other. But, you know, that, but giving it to each other and then... It's like that old thing where, where you, all, you all got the pass card to gig each other, but then when someone else does, does it, we all turn on it. Yeah. You know, it's, it, it's like that. I guess it's an unwritten law, but, but Aboriginal people, if you ever sit down with Aboriginal people and they feel comfortable enough to take down the, the walls, um, because let's face it, we walk around with where we don't feel comfortable a great deal of the time, um, if you sit with, with First Nation people and you get to the point where you start to uncover their humour, we're, we're a funny mob. There, there are wonderful, wonderful accounts, um, 1830s, 1840s, 1820s, um, of, the, of the mimicking power of Aborigines and of how... Aboriginal people? Aborig well, Aboriginal people and that, and that they, the delight and the surprise of Europeans at having the piss taken out of them by people they considered kind of savage and tribal. And suddenly they are walking up and down, mocking the shit out of Europeans in European accents. Um, and it was a thing of delight that people, people recorded. 
Um, and, and that power of mimicry is recorded again and again and again and again um, all through the 19th century as a thing of delight. And I'm sure when Joe gets together with his mob, he doesn't laugh at white people because there's nothing to laugh about, right? No, <laughs> not dancing. No, 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 nothing to do with dancing or anything like that. I'll give you the tip. <laughs> You've heard, haven't you, that... I forget now who made it, but it was made recently. Um, an extraordinarily funny Aboriginal show where um, you could choose the voice um, on your... On your <laughs> it's on black it, comedy. It was on black comedy. Yeah. You could choose the voice in your car for giving you directions, you yeah. know, and you could choose an Aboriginal voice. And it was unbelievably funny of this voice just giving utter shit to the driver. <laughs> Have you heard that thing? It is breathtakingly funny. I think I think it gives it gives us a relatability because again if we're people who who make up less than 3% of the population 97% of our day is mixing with non-aboriginal people right so in 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 a, in, a, in a general sense there are ways and things that we do or things and and ways that we do things that that is particularly funny to us but when other people... So if you started to try and mock that Aboriginal voice then, I would have gone close to throwing you off the stage. Yeah, of but course. That's a different story. But again, it gets back to the fact that everyone mocks everyone, but then we stick up for each other when we stick up for each other, you know? And there are rules of mockery. I mean, after yeah. 20-something years together, my partner informed me solemnly the other day, and his family is Italian, uh, his partner informed me solemnly, it was about 18 months ago, that... He could use the word, but I could not describe people as wogs. And no, why kindly stop doing it? Um, and there was a certain force behind it, and, um, and I've stopped as, as best I can. But look, can I raise something else about larrikins? We have this myth about ourselves that we're larrikins, and, and that there is a kind of a larrikin culture in Australia, which is very much about not paying much heed to authority, going our own way, having an independent thought on various subjects. And I've... It's complete, complete self-delusion. Um, we are an orderly, obedient, law-abiding country. We mock our politicians, but we obey. We mock individual politicians, but we obey our leaders. We, we without any real worries whatever, um, sit by as citizens and watch Parliament generally annually for the last 20 or so years, pass another tranche of security legislation which makes this country the most over-regulated security-wise nation in, in the democracies of the world. We are, we do not rebel. We are not independent. We will not pass a change to the constitution of this country unless every single political leader agrees with the change. We just won't do it. We are incredibly obedient and we salve our pride by saying we're larrikin Aussies. Uh-uh, we're not. Well, here's, here's, here's a, an example which shows that I think we... If you think about sort of the foundation myths of, of Australia as a federation, obviously um, Gallipoli and Anzac, which, by the way, you might not know actually included New Zealanders as well, um, but uh, also, of course, a large number of Indian soldiers who are entirely forgotten in yep. the stories. But yep. that's by the by. Yep. By the by. So anyway, uh, Gallipoli, First World War, the Aussie digger, you know, that whole uh, persona of uh, the sort of uh, rebellious uh, Aussies who thumb their nose at uh, the, the British generals and, uh, and their commanding officers and everything. What were they doing there in the first place? You know, that, that's, which I think goes to your point. You know, we, we, we wanted to be part of it, but we characterise ourselves as having, despite the fact we were part of it, we were actually outside it. Does that... Uh, look, um, really, really, really quickly, I think we had a notion in the 1890s of being a larrical, a larrical nation. We were going to be a unique kind of country. We did amazing, original things. We formed a nation without rebellion or warfare. We gave women the vote. We gave women the right to stand for election. 
um, we had the first Labour Party. It was Labour government. It was very brief. But we had the first Labour government in the world. We were original. We were working out for ourselves a future where we were ourselves. And that was this notion partly of an original country with strong labour movement, etc., etc., etc. And we went into the First World War and that spirit was crushed completely. And Gallipoli was part of that crushing. And the last truly original thing we did in this country for about half a century was to vote against Billy Hughes' referendums for conscription. And that was it. And at that point, we became a fully paid-up member of a very, very conservative, dull empire. But and that originality, we really have never yeah. got it back. But, but David, I, 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 I just have to take you up on that. I mean, yes. I, I think that... I mean, I don't think we're in disagreement about this, but my point is that I agree that that's what happened, but we've, we've salved our conscious or redefined ourselves by the sort of myth of the, of the bronzed Aussie Anzac who was so different from, you know, the English. I mean, uh, there's a, a, one of the writers I struck last year who was talking about how, you know, Kiwis saw themselves as a better type of Englishman, whereas we didn't, you know, we, we saw ourselves differently in the First World War. What you say might be completely true, but it, we nonetheless recreated the sort of myth of Anzac to a large extent by suggesting that we were still somehow the Larrikin soldiers. But um, I've, I sense that I'm Rebecca's... <laughs> Please. Yeah. So I think, you know, I think that's right. In the 1890s, we did want to kind of create this, you know, Australia as an incubator of a working man's paradise, but it was a white man's working paradise. Yeah, of you know, course. It, was, it was lockstep with um, the dispossession of Indigenous people and the expulsion of and continuing exclusion of black people. So I think what's interesting to me about the larrikin spirit and generally about how Australia navigates this idea of sameness, right? It's very important. We're, we're completely comfortable in some ways with a whole lot of different kinds of now, with different people from different countries coming here. This is pre-COVID, obviously. As long as they stop speaking their original language as quickly as possible, and start being like Aussies as soon as possible. And I'll give you a really small example of this. Um, I was, years ago, I remember being, doing a focus group out in the suburbs of South Australia with a whole lot of guys who would all consider themselves to be larrikins, whose job it was to kind of, you know, they, were, they worked in a cold storage place for a big supermarket. Right? And they were all, we were talking about multiculturalism. I remember it particularly because one man we were talking about, as always comes up, Sharia law and the burqa, sometimes in these kinds of groups. And this man said, the problem with the burqa is I'm really worried that a lot of those women wearing the burqa will line up behind me when I'm at the ATM and steal my passcode. And I thought, in, in, are <laughs> gangs of women in burqas roaming the, the suburbs of South Australia? Have they both not seen them? <laughs> so anyway, so this was the tone of the conversation. And they were talking about two guys who were, they were working with, and they were both first-generation Indian. One of them they didn't like. One of them they liked. And I said, oh, what, what is it that you like about one guy, not the other? Oh, this other guy never takes, he never jokes, he never takes a smoko and never skives off work, right? So he's not a real Australian. The other one, he laughs, he jokes, he skives off work, he takes a smoko. That was the premise in which they accepted those two first-generation Indian men. One of them was prepared immediately to behave exactly like them, and the other one was excluded because he was doing his job and not smoking. Isn't that what we're supposed to do in this country? So I think there is this thing about, about this. It, we're all equal if we're all the same, and there's a problem with this kind of egalitarian myth behind the larrikin, which is the evisceration of difference and the evisceration of nuance. And it's just, it's a constant tension in how we are an extraordinarily multicultural society, but we insist on, on everybody being the same, which is a kind of authoritarianism. It's well, a kind it, of cultural it, authoritarianism. It also comes back to, it also comes back to, with my people, the assimilation policy. In, in assimilating into a into a into a way of life, and I can't I couldn't help but 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 trigger and my ears pricked when you said a comment that this country was founded not on war, 
My people were raped and massacred, man. Good point. Like, good point. <laughs> so, so I think, and it goes back to your point when we're, when we're talking about not conforming to a certain way of life. It's, it's the assimilation policy all over again. You can come here as long as you speak our language and behave the way we do things when we've only been here for five minutes on someone else's stolen land anyway. To, to madly backpedal on what I said, I mean, the individual colonies were founded by invasion and warfare and slaughter, um, but the forming of the Federation did not come about either by a rebellion from Britain or by the conquest of one colony by another. That's what I, that's what I mean by that. But the territory... The territory was a territory of warfare from the moment the whites stepped, on, stepped ashore. Um, and I'm not saying for a moment that that federation was a perfect thing, but it is very, very rare in the history of the world for countries to be formed without a war, a rebellion or, or a civil war. That's the point. That's the very point rare, I'm making. It's very rare in the white world. It's not very well rare in the native way of life throughout the world. First Nation peoples right across the land weren't formed on wars. Well, that there is point. a... Mm. Yeah. Well, um, it's an, an interesting conversation, you know, which we could go Sorry on. Sorry to digress. No, no, no. No, it's not a digression at all, but um, I'm sort of conscious that there are also going to be some questions and things. And I suppose I just wanted to, um, before we do go to some questions, um, the, the point which sort of comes out of what David was saying about um, national security laws. The other side of larrikinism beyond humour, beyond wanting everybody to be the same, whether it's via assimilation or, you know, sort of culturally, um, is this sort of submission to authority. And have we become more submissive to authority, to the, to the authority uh, and the sort of positions of government, or have we become more apathetic? What, what's, you know, because, I mean, it, it is interesting that, it, and it is shocking when you actually look at um, the, the path of national security law, and my sort of feeling is it's partly just the eye-glazing nature of incrementalism in these policies where you go, oh, yes, I think they're already locking up 14-year-old kids, so now they're only going to talk about seven-year-old kids, so, you know, what's, what's seven years or something? You know, it's a, it, people just get overwhelmed by it. But, I mean, what's the feeling? Do you think in the age of... I mean, we don't talk about terror so much these days. We talk about pandemics. But did terror change our view of authority? And then let's talk about COVID next. But anybody got thoughts about this? Um, I suppose one of the things that interests me about what in the work that I do about what the community will accept in terms of regulation and not, is the problem is that there are good and there are bad things about that. So, you know, when it comes to things like public safety, the acceptance of things like, you know, seat belts and, you know, um, restriction of smoking and all those other kinds of things and the kinds of ways in which, you know, despite the occasional media stuff about people fighting over toilet paper, um, most Australians, you know, coming to terms with lockdown and, and rewarding governments that have decided mm. to act, you know, and kind of bring forward legislation that seems quite restrictive. So there's good things about that in terms of the public safety, but I think what happens is there's not a very developed critical argument about when it's appropriate for government to control what we do and take away our freedoms and when it isn't. So it can lead to really ineffective and punitive policies. So, for example, you know, things like the intervention in the Northern Territory, locking up Julian Assange and doing whatever they can to kind of slowly kill him. Um, all, these, all these kinds of things where you think, are we... It's not in itself the exercise of government power. It's sometimes the uncritical analysis about is this exercise appropriate for the public good? So it's that and that. And I wonder whether it's because we still realise we are a small population largely clinging to the coast at the edge of the world and we still feel that enormous sense that we need to be protected and follow other people. I, I actually think I'll spend the rest of my career trying to understand that why. That. So to me, during the course of my life, it seems that that has changed. You know, the fact that 
something will be announced and everybody will just go, oh, okay. Now, is that just that the media has changed, that we don't have a discursive media? But it's, it sort of seems like all of this stuff just sort of goes through to the keeper and there's an intolerance for questioning it that wasn't there even 20 years ago. I would suggest that social media has played a huge part in the, one would say, uprising of people who disagree or, or fight back against certain ways of being told to do things. Like, like we are followers as people. Like if the government comes out and says, all right, everyone's locking down, you're not allowed to leave your house, then some people will go, yeah, okay, sweet. They know what's best for us. Like, sorry, a big part of me questions a hell of a lot because of who I am as an Aboriginal man. Like, we were told that this is the best way of life for you, but particularly it wasn't, right? So, so I question a stack load of things, not because I'm just someone who is, you know, likes to question things and likes to be a bit of a shit sometimes. No, it's just because I don't trust a hell of a lot of people that my life and my children's life and the effectiveness of how we should be as far as health and well-being goes as a people i don't particularly trust that some people have got the best my best interest at heart when it's all right for them sitting in their million dollar mansions when you know i'm struggling to pay my bills every week and i'm i'm struggling with you know out in dubbo there's no toilet paper and stuff like that and don't get me wrong we we haven't been overly affected by the pandemic to a, to a degree out in the bush, out in the country, um, to some places like, like my manager lives over on the West Coast. She's over in just south of Perth. She goes, oh, we're going into lockdown again. I was like, I'm like, man, I'm, I'm sorry. I can't relate to how bad that is because I'm super fortunate that we haven't, you know, we haven't been like that out in the bush. Um, but I think back to my original point, um, social media allows people to influence other people apart from the six o'clock news where we've trusted forever. But it also tends to be smaller conversations. So you don't get, you know, sort of at a national level, you don't get people in the same, this side and that side. David? Well, I think um, the big political parties know absolutely from the work of Rebecca and, and others um, that there is a big constituency out there for protection. Um, and there is a, there is a sizable constituency that um, is afraid, is afraid of race, um, amongst other things, um, is afraid of foreigners. Um, and um, in the old days, they used to be afraid of dirty books and dirty films and all of those things. And there is a, there is um, a real political advantage in securing for your party the votes of those fearful people who are calling for lots of protection. And one of the fundamental um, structural problems of politics in this country, for me, as far as I'm concerned, is that this educated, mildly liberal, pretty progressive, mildly secular country has federal governments in particular who really cannot get the numbers together to govern unless they make a strong appeal to those who are fearful and crying out for protection and crying out for restrictions of one kind or another. And that's, they're the fundamental alliances of Australian politics. And the Liberal Party needs them to govern, the Labor Party needs them to govern, and therefore there is no strong dialogue at the centre of our politics about liberty, about freedom, about what is and isn't um, uh, uh, sensible forms of protection. The Labor Party has been completely and utterly gutless in this area for decades, um, essentially waving through all of these outrageous security um, bills through Parliament. They, they were gutless 25 years ago now, um, at the Tampa time, um, Kim Beasley put up a little, his hand to criticise a little corner of one of the pieces of John Howard's legislation. He was screamed down by his party. And, and that's the problem, in my view, the fundamental problem of Australian politics is the necessity to appeal to the very conservative and very fearful peoples um, in our community in order to be able to govern. 
And that is covered to a great extent by this false notion that we're a happy-go-lucky larrikin country. We're not. The key to government in this country is appealing to people who are obedient, docile, fearful, and wish to be protected. So I've got some... So luckily, David, I've got some data to back that up. So most of my work now is on climate change, and um, we've done a segmentation of the Australian population on how they feel about climate. And there's a group we call the cautious. They're about 18% of the population, highest percentage of swinging voters in that group. Their biggest, their most important value is safety and security. They're highly economically and socially anxious. This is not a group that doesn't believe in climate change or doesn't like um, renewable energy. This is a group that's incredibly worried about change and the pace of change and whether they'll do better. They see change or any kind of transition where it should be around energy or the economy as one where they're going to miss out. And they are ones that are yeah, really concerned and treat, and treat in, in that group, in, in other research that I've done in the past, worried about terrorism, worried about crime, and that, that stands interlocked with their concern about things, unjustifiable concerns about things like cost of living, job security. And you're right, it's an electorally very important group, and it can often be an electorally it's a, a, important group where they turn to the leader particularly, rather than the policies that matter to them. And it's only 18%, but it's incredibly influential. And everybody else kind of sits you know, on the progressive side, they're almost always going to vote Labor or Green, kind of almost no matter what that happens. The other side, they're almost like Conservatives. So this is a group that's up for grabs in many ways in any election, which means that at the heart of any... Unfortunately, because of that electoral politics, how we break that is really difficult. At the heart of any message that's going to win, particularly a federal election, the heart of it has to be fear. Just trying to um, do the devil's advocate thing and making you all turn those very cogent arguments on their head. I'm going to ask a question which comes from the Armidale Library. If being a larrikin is a virtue, can it also be a vice? There are a few suppositions in that, but anybody want to have a go at that one? We've, we've tossed up a few vices in, in yeah. our discussion tonight, <laughs> yes. haven't we? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think most definitely it can because, you know, we've, we've raised a few of these around how, how, how it is a vice in a lot of people's, a lot of people's life and, and in our communities. Um, the fact that being a joker, or how I see a larrikin, being a joker and being someone who's, who's humorous, I think, you know, that's a very good thing to do, especially around certain times that we've all been in um, around with the pandemic and, you know, having an, an eased sense of humour can, can sit a little bit easier. Um, but it most definitely can be a horrific thing when it's speaking about someone in a negative way. It's a bit like being a drunk, isn't it? You know, it's, <laughs> it's fun for a while and then it's boring. Um, you know, they go, you know, larrikins go too far. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's fine. I mean, larrikins can be immensely admirable. I remember in my legal career, which lasted about 18 months, um, <laughs> there were much-liked lawyers who were men of enormous skill and completely dependable, but were regarded as larrikins because they had a bit of fun. Mm. Um, and I, they're, they're everywhere. That kind of larrikin, that's great fun. But... No, it can be a cover for the most appalling things. And it can sometimes just be an excuse for not getting down and doing some work, etc. <laughs> My mother's I just, view. I, I, the reality is that there's tons of people who are fun and funny in our society but don't get to be larrikins because it's incredibly narrow. It's, a, it's, a, it's worse than a bikini. It's very narrow. Only a few people can wear it and pull it off. <laughs> Perhaps not a bikini, more like a G-string. I don't know who the fuck designed them. But, like, basically... I'm not Where are we A larrikin is a G-string. Very few people want to wear it. Very few people pull it off. And other... It just, like, I just don't understand. When you I just say, don't get it. When you say pull it off... I'm not wearing a G-string now. Okay. I'm not... <laughs> I'm with you. I'm, with, oh, I'm interested in where you're going with this, because um, that's where I was going. You just okay, maybe, maybe you the imagery didn't work, but I am drunk because I'm the only genuine larrikin on this, on this stage. So I started with the word cunt and I'm ending with talking about Jesus. We've still got 13 minutes to go. Have we oh my got God, 13 where's it going? Go? Um, um, 
And that was only Armadale. Yeah. <laughs> Hi to everyone in Armadale. If there's yeah. anyone under the age of 18, I really apologise. Yeah. Um, speaking of these things, uh, Rebecca, <coughs> uh, well, not G-strings, but um, bogans. Um, you've got oh, a few yeah. thought, thoughts about bogans and larrikins. So I was doing, I was thinking about this at the moment. Um, it's, it's very alive and I'm doing a lot of research on um, how Australians feel about renewable energy. So I was doing some focus groups. <laughs> I was doing some focus groups this week. Um, and just as an aside, it's a very funny story. All my focus groups are now on Zoom, and which means that a whole lot of people who we would normally not be able to meet at focus groups in rural and regional Australia can pay, um, can basically um, be involved. Anyway, so as a focus group, there's a whole lot of basically men in their 30s and 40s in Queensland on this focus group, and we we're waiting for Janelle. Janelle was um, 75, that's what the sheet said to me, and Janelle could work her audio on the Zoom, but not um, her actual camera. So waiting for Janelle, you know, it's just black, and then Janelle finds her camera, boom. Janelle, you know, we suddenly see Janelle, Janelle's nude. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, and Janelle's 75, and I'm, and, and, you know, you don't really get much on Zoom from people, you know, but, but the palpable fear of these men in their 30s and 40s that Janelle was nude. And I said, oh, Janelle, thanks for um, finding your um, camera. And just, I want to know, Janelle, are you, um, are, you, are you nude? And she's like, oh, my boob tube's fallen down. Sorry, darling. And she pulled it up, a hint of animal print, and then she pulled it down again. And then, so Janelle's a larrikin. And yeah. Janelle had a lot of fantastic things to say about renewable energy. And we spent one and a half hours talking about renewable energy with Janelle. Anyway, we also had a conversation on this Zoom meeting because I was, I was testing all these messages of kind of ordinary Australians having these conversations about renewable energy. And what was really interesting is, and these were almost entirely people in rural and regional Australia, is they said, look, you know, we want renewable energy, but we have some questions about whether it can do the job. And you're kind of making these questions out as if they're dumb bogan questions, and we're not dumb bogans. So there is this kind of sense of, there is this, I think, interesting criticism at the community level about whether these archetypes about Australians really fit our everyday life. Um, and we have seen more recently some very kind of ham-fisted, very, uh, you know, really problematic ways in which some of our leaders are characterising people who care about things like climate change or racism as conversations that happen in wine bars. There's wine bars and cafes all over Australia as someone who's travelled all over Australia. And so I just find these kinds of weird, outdated notions of who, what ordinary Australians think and how they respond to things, it just doesn't gel with the work that I do, that, that kind of, you know, that kind of um, really, I think, really basic conversation at that kind of leadership level and what's actually happening. Well, with, um, two things there, uh, I think, Rebecca. One of them is you've identified that we have at least one female larrikin, i.e. Yeah, Janelle. That's right. Good on you, um, Janelle. Good on you, Janelle. Keep wearing um, that boob tube. Yeah, and the second or one not. is, I, with respect, I think you were very last week about that uh, because last night the Prime Minister said we shouldn't engage in identity politics. So <laughs> I just, just keep up, OK? Yeah. Now, we have a couple of very nice spotlit <laughs> questions from the floor. And this gentleman was first. If heaven is full with politically correct angels and sterile farts, and all the larrikins and cunts are in hell, then please send me there by way of express post. <laughs> and in my thinking, larrikin is good humoured, good natured, you know what I mean and I'm not Australian, I would say, or I would call Einstein Alerican because of his outrageous way of thinking outside the box. My way to the panel, would you rather take the elevator up to hell or down to heaven? I don't believe in heaven and hell, so I, I, I don't know what I'd do. I've thought about it. I've had to think about it a lot because of the nature of my private life. And... Um, <laughs> And I, I think of hell as a bit like Melbourne, where the, <laughs> the company is wonderful, but the climate appalling. Uh, it's the best I can do.
Joe, Joe, where do you want to end up? Uh, I'm the sort of I'm the sort of dude who who disrupts things. Um, I don't follow the line. So wherever you want to put me, I want to be with the disruptors. I don't, or I want to be with the ones who follow the toe, and I'll disrupt them. So I'm good with either. <laughs> My question is unfortunately a little more PG-13. Um, I was just wondering, to what extent do you think that the term larrikin has been co-opted by the right in general, but particularly the LNP, as part of the broader culture wars, you know, where you've got the, the rural working class blokes on one end and then the us, really, the inner city latte-sipping lefties on the other. And if you do think it has been co-opted, how do we fight that? Oh, I, look, I definitely think that's happened and um, Barnaby Joyce is a pretty good example of that. There's plenty of um, uh, people who've had like, quite privileged upbringings that kind of go into politics and, again, put on this larrikin costume and it's pretty um, problematic. So I don't know really what we do. Maybe we need to turf the idea entirely. Maybe we need to work much harder at creating, um, building on, I think, still a very kind of laudable tradition around, um, you know, at least some egalitarianism in our society, not completely perfect, and create new, uh, new visions of who we are and who we can be in the future that put First Nation stories at the centre of it, put the stories of, of people who don't fit the larrikin G-string. That's a beautiful thought. Um, <laughs> It's a real writer's festival thought. And, um, <laughs> but, yeah, sure, Barnaby Joyce and all of that, you know, Barnaby's a larrikin and, you know, um, yeah, et cetera, et cetera. But you'll know, you won't hear the word larrikin much used by the culture warriors. Sure, Bolt and, and what's that other person's name? Rowan Dean. Rowan, Rowan Dean, Dane. yes. He's in the back of the Financial Review, isn't he? Same um, page as me. Uh, a rib tickler. Um, but... Nearly all of the language for the culture wars comes from America. You've got to understand this because it has been very, very expensively workshopped in right-wing think tanks in America. Woke is not a word that was invented in Australia. It was invented, I think, in Connecticut, somewhere like that, and it has been heavily worked there. As political correctness comes out of America, all of this language is absolutely American, and larrikin just doesn't fit. I mean, it's, it, sniffs of, it sniffs of reality. None of the other language does, um, but what brilliant language it is. Imagine having the intellectual firepower to actually turn the word progressive into a pejorative. Isn't it marvellous? I mean, it does, you don't do that easily. You've got to have... Anyway, uh, that's another question for another time. <laughs> Millions but of But you dollars. won't hear them talking... I mean, good on them for giving it a try, but no, Larrikin sits uneasily in the mouth of a culture warrior when things like identity politics are there. Uh, by, by the way, on identity politics, being a banker, a farmer, or a financier, that's not identity. Identity is being gay, or black, or young. They're identities, and you mustn't express the politics of being gay, black, or young, because that's identity politics, but you are allowed to express the politics of being a financier, a farmer, or an industrialist. Do you understand that? But that's another <laughs> discussion for another time. Um, I think, I think as well the problems with, with some of the people that we talk about who have been voted in our politics, they're voted in by the same people who think the same. If we see a reflection of those type of people in politics, is, there's every chance that there's stack loads of people out there voting for them. So um, maybe move to their electorate and get them voted out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or we just all say that actually what, what they're missing is that we're all being larrikins. Another question over here. My question is to David. Can you tell us why we no longer see you on Insiders? Can we just keep this amongst ourselves? <laughs> <laughs> they didn't fire me like they fired Jared. <laughs> it's a shocking thing to do to a fine public thinker. An intellectual brought down in his prime. They've been waiting for me to show some signs that I'm actually an insider. But there are no signs of that because I'm sitting in Camperdown writing a book about the 1830s. 
and I think rather to the detriment of the show, they are not paying nearly enough attention to the fascinating political squabbles of the 1830s. <laughs> I've been talking to the production crew about this, but they've been deaf to my pleas. When I'm back in the 21st century, sometime in about a century, I'll be back on the show. But thank you very much for your concern. Yes. I don't know if it's anyone else, but I could close my eyes and picture a David Attenborough documentary with you talking to it every single time. That's a wrap, by the way. No, it's no, a wrap. Look, it's, a good, it's a good thing. I've got a tremendous rapport like, with like animals. It, There's <laughs> no doubt about that. <laughs> if, we, if we get an Attenborough show on a big screen up here and you just talk like that, it would make sense to me. It would make sense. It's not too late, David. <laughs> it's not too late. But I've got to finish with the 1830s. And then I'll think, but look, thanks. I'll think about that. Orangutans up a tree. <laughs> Me talking to them. Yep. Uh, Thanks. Right. Um, well, we, we're sort of almost out of time, um, and but um, I just thought I'd uh, I might close unless anybody has some final observations, as we say on Insiders, or if you know Rebecca would like to be smutty again, one or the other. Um, but if you buy my book, I, I'll give you something smutty. If you it, buy my book, and I'm signing. I'll put something oh, in the book. Uh, okay. Anyway, so. Here's a couple of interesting observations. Manning Clark talked about larrikins. Soaring over them all is the larrikin, almost archly self-conscious, too smart for his own good, witty rather than humorous, exceeding limits, bending rules and sailing close to the wind, avoiding rather than evading responsibility, playing to an audience, mocking pomposity and smugness, taking the piss out of people, Cutting down tall poppies, born of a Wednesday, looking both ways for a Sunday. Larger than life, sceptical, iconoclastic, egalitarian, yet suffering fools badly, and above all, defiant. Now, I think that's quite good, and I think that's quite a good description for our panel today. <laughs> uh, and um, certainly not wowsers, who, who are, a wowser is a simple, satisfying, succinct, think of, you can think of anybody who this applies to, single word which aptly distinguishes the whole race of windy, watery, cantankerous, snuffling, chad bands, stiggins, holy joes and scripture-sprouting sneaks, <laughs> hypocritical humbugs and unctuous, dirty-minded rotters who spend their time interfering with the healthy instincts and recreations of healthy-minded, honest humanity. Is that a description of the panel? I don't think so. I think we could take a... Uh, couldn't we take an audience vote? Yes. <laughs> yes. OK. So who, who, who thinks the panel are a bunch of larrikins and who of them thinks that we're wowsers? Larrikins? Oh, yes. I think, I think that's... We want to, we want to be larrikins, Let's I think. stick with that one. It's reassuring. We, we, it's reassuring. We realise that we do want to be larrikins. We do want to go to hell. Um, somebody once described my Catholic uh, education. They said hell was a, a cesspit where... The Pope went round in his speedboat on a Wednesday. Um, and uh, on, that, on that note, thank you all for coming along and, you know, defy the world. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to and rate our channel wherever you listen to your podcasts.